listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Curious, syncretic, soulful. Alexis Bacon is a composer recognized nationally and internationally for both her acoustic and electroacoustic music. Her work draws inspiration from a diverse array of sound worlds, including vanishing American oral traditions, medieval Provençal poetry, Norwegian fiddle music, and Afro-Brazilian religious ceremonies. Throughout her career, she has won awards including the IAWM Search for New Music Pauline Oliveros Prize, the ASIA International Composition Prize, the ASCAP Seamus Student Composition Commission, and an honorable mention in the 2018 Hildegard Competition. She is an assistant professor of music composition at Michigan State University. Well, uh, great to see you again. And happy to be talking to you today. So we're going to look at four of your pieces today. And I wanted to start off with your piece Cradle for alto saxophone and fixed media. So how did this piece come about and and what's what's kind of the the story behind the work? So Cradle was um, one of the first pieces I wrote for electronics with live instrument. And I wrote it while I was still a student at University of Michigan. And it's one of my pieces that still gets played a lot today. And um, I included the recording that Dan Puccio made. So I I love his playing in this. Um, But the story behind it is that I was at that age that a lot of people around me were starting to have kids. And um, my sister had a kid. My younger sister had a kid, my niece, Ellie. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool to like record sort of baby talk and baby babbling and baby noises and, and, you know, just use that as like the, the texture for for a piece. And so she brought my niece up to the studio um, at University of Michigan, and we brought her into the studio and then tried to record her while not making any noise ourselves. So basically like chasing her around the studio with a microphone, hoping she would make some noise, <laughs> which, <laughs> which was like not not very practical. It took a long time because she's like, okay, I'm not gonna make noise if you're not making noise, this is weird. And then she just wanted mm-hmm. to press buttons. Um, but eventually, you know, after quite a long time of that, I, I got some noises and then I, I took them to the studio and I was like, wow, none of these are gentle and delicate and the kind of thing I thought I was going to get. They are all like primal screams. It was really amazing. So I got a lot of like, ah, those kind of noises and taken out of context. They were just like, really, I found them really thrilling and disturbing and kind of funny sometimes and scary sometimes. And it kind of sort of summed up what I felt about having kids at that time. So, <laughs> so that ended up being more like what the piece became about. Um, and then, so I, I composed the fixed media component and um, I knew I wanted to have some kind of live instrument. And, and I had a friend that played saxophone, Dan Puccio, who had a background in both classical saxophone and jazz saxophone. So we went to the studio together and, and I sort of said like, okay, sort of improvise on these pitches. And he would go, and then I would record several takes and then mix it later in the piece. And then from that, sort of get my favorite version. And then from that, I had to sort of reverse engineer it and come up with a score that other people could play also. So um, the score has a lot of um, sort of quasi-improvisatory pa- uh, places. So, you know, every performance is a little bit different. Um but yeah, so that's that's how the piece came about. That's so interesting that like you you kind of just went into the studio with uh, with Dan and it's like, OK, just kind of do this. And then, yeah, almost like making making a jazz transcription or something like of a solo for that. That's that's a really interesting uh, and collaborative way to work. Um, 
This you said this was your first piece for live instrument and electronics. It was actually my second, oh, but second. Um, the first one I wrote for myself on viola. So it's it's the first one that really gets played. Okay, yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, I know Dan Puccio as well. Okay. We went, uh, I believe, right after Michigan. He went to the University of Arizona, mm-hmm. where I was at. Okay. I wrote my first right. piece. He, well, he's just awesome, so you know that. Like he'll, yeah, he'll do like, anything. <laughs> I mean, mine. Uh, my my first piece for uh, it, it, he was playing tenor and um, and uh, and fixed media, and it's awful. Like no one's ever going to hear it. It's it's so bad. But Dan was amazing yeah. to work with. He's just incredible. But the, um, I mean, that was my first time writing for saxophone. Like it was honestly, it was the first time I thought of saxophone as a classical instrument. That yeah. wasn't really a thing in my undergrad. And I had never really thought about it before I got to Michigan. And so it was really my first time working with a saxophonist and my first time realizing how amazing they are and um, how much, you know, they want repertoire and are willing to work with composers. Yeah. So it was just a great experience all around. But like in terms of collaboration, you're right. That was like one of the most collaborative pieces I've done. And I think it was one of the most successful for that reason, because like no matter how hard it, it sounds, it's totally playable or, it, you know, it's flexible enough that the saxophonist can figure out something that works. Mm-hmm. And I haven't done a piece quite like that since then. And, you know, I, I probably should go back to working that way. It's harder now. I feel like usually when I'm writing for somebody, we're pretty spread apart. So it's harder to get yeah. like that level of in-person collaboration. But yeah, I, think I mean, it, it really helps. Yeah, that 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 kind of sounds like, you know, it's it's like just being in a band or something. Exactly. You know, or um, I've uh, I've heard like interviews that like like Bjork kind of works that way with when she's recording stuff. Um, you know, she might go into the studio with with like singers and be like, OK, you do this, you do that. Let's let's try it. Go. Yeah. You know, and it's like it just seems like such an organic process and and a really attractive too mm-hmm. because it's like i i you know it's it, it, you're you're really lucky to have that like hey we're we're just going to go in and do this and and have that player at your at, at your disposal and you're right that that doesn't really often happen that much <laughs> everyone's super busy um yeah. So uh, what kind of like fixed media techniques were you working with at that time that, that make their way into the piece? Well, so I should say the, uh, the other sound source for that is a tabla. Um, at the time, I was the TA for the electronic music class, and there was a student that played tabla, and I just said, hey, can you come in and let me record you sometime? So like all the sort of drum-like sounds are from that, and then everything else is from the voice. Um, so, I mean, you can hear a lot of pitch shift, lots of reverb and delay, um, all sort of sort of standard stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the the sort of low drum groove in the middle, that was just tabla pitch shifted down two octaves or something like that. So there are also these kind of like almost watery sounds in the piece, like before the before the tabla groove comes in. What what was that? Was that voice or was that tabla? <laughs> I think if I know what you're talking about, I think that was also tabla. I think that was sort of like a high tabla thing that, yeah. that got processed. Yeah, I mean that's I I love those types of sounds. I mean I'm 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 really a super big fan of really dry but very rich mm-hmm. sounds. Um, there's like there's a very tactile quality about them. I mean they 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 end up kind of resembling like water in a way. Mm-hmm. 
but it's not and it it's it's this weird sensation of listening to it it's like oh i want to touch that water yeah. you know and it's like the sound I, I don't know there's something about the sound that's that's really great i really like that well if you ever get a chance to record tabla it's just it is just such a rich sound by itself so it lends yeah. itself really well to all these different kinds i mean like it just it has so much depth and so much gesture and all the different sounds they can get with it yeah yeah so definitely it works really well um you know you were you were talking about going into the studio with uh with dan puccio did did the baby talk influence the sax like how you were directing him to kind of like make gestures in the totally. studio totally yeah totally because that's what i what i thought was interesting because especially because he had this jazz background so he was just showing me like all the extended techniques he could do. It's like, Oh, I can scream in the instrument. And I was like, Oh, that sounds kind of like the baby scream. Let's put them together and, you know, have them dialogue with each other and see how that feels. Or he was like, Oh, I can do this vaudeville technique where I laugh. I was like, Oh, right, that, I heard kind of, that, yeah. that kind of works the voice sample too. So, um, yeah. So then I was like, okay, can you scream here starting on this note? Or can you do a gliss? He also has a crazy altissimo. So I was like, okay, can you play like this, high note and gliss down and it kind of you know matched the pitch of the voice at that point yeah i remember um in when i was working with him uh on on the piece that i wrote with him you know uh because he has that like improv improvisation background the end of my piece is just like pure and utter chaos like the electronics are he record he recorded a lot for me um for this piece, but the the electronics are a time stretched like multiphonic that he played, and then mm. he is just I, I didn't even write anything in the score. I was like, just just go ape shit, like, <laughs> and he does that really really well. He, oh, totally. You're right. He has an incredible altissimo. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, awesome. When you were taking those like recordings that that he made and kind of kind of transcribing it or or you know messing with it to put it into notation did you was it like a straight transcription or did you say did you find like okay i really like this but you know uh i want to work with some kind of pitch system or scale or something so he improvised it this way but if i change it this way it kind of locks into this like how did how did that um that like uh translation process go from from recorded material to score so I tried to at least transcribe the notes as much as possible. I didn't worry too much about the rhythms. I kind of would just, you know, say like as fast as possible, these notes or start with these notes, improvise on these notes or, you know, or improvise freely within this pitch set. I, I mean, I wasn't too prescriptive about like, oh, it has to be within this scale or anything mm -hmm. like that. It was more like, um, you know, within these notes as fast as possible. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Two seconds or whatever. Right. So like, I mean, the way it syncs up, I want there to feel like there's a dialogue between the two parts. Most of it doesn't have to sync super precisely. I just did it with with timings and oral cues. So, um, you know, if, if they're really listening and, and most players seem to be able to do this pretty well, if they're like if they're listening, they, they can hear like, OK, the voice does this, then I do this. And there's kind of a back and forth. And there's just a, a couple spots that ideally line up perfectly. Mm -hmm. In reality, it happens maybe 50 percent of the time. But mm -hmm. when it does happen, it's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's take a listen to it. So this is Dan Puccio performing Cradle.
Well, let's move on to your piece, uh, Alba. And this is for a mezzo-soprano singing cellist. So, or, of course, mezzo-soprano and cello. Um, yes. So this is this is very unique. I mean, how did this come about? And um, and if you could, like, tell me about the research that you did that kind of led you to this piece. So um, this is a piece written for a very special singing cellist originally uh, named Melina Rauschenfelds. And um, she is a, a, a musician. She's also a composer. Uh, she lives in Cleveland. And um, she's one of those people that just does lots of things. So her, her primary area these days is sort of early music singing. Um, but she also is a Juilliard trained cellist. And so she sometimes has pieces written for her, or there's a few pieces out there for, for singing cellist. Uh-huh. Um, it's just really amazing to watch her do it. It's really cool. Um, so um, I was writing uh, another piece for her Baroque ensemble that was supposed to be premiered a year ago, and now hopefully will be premiered in the fall. Mm-hmm. But um, so I was writing a piece for her Baroque ensemble, and leading up to that, she asked if I could write her a singing cello piece, and I said absolutely. And so this piece, um, Alba, the text is uh, medieval Provençal. So it was a text written about a thousand years ago. And I chose this text because when she asked me for the piece, there wasn't a huge turnaround time. So I was like, I don't want to deal with copyright permission. Yeah. I want to find something public domain. And I also knew she was a big language geek and, you know, just like she's the kind of person that kind of loves to sort of sink her teeth into different languages and speaks many different languages. So I thought like, okay, I, I could look for something maybe French or Spanish and because she's an early music singer, maybe an, an older text would be interesting. And um, just through sort of like internet rabbit holes, um, I found the the music of the troubadour and troubaritzes, which were about a thousand years ago. And this is something I vaguely remembered from music history, but I had totally forgotten about. But the first known secular women composers were these composers um, in like around 1100 
in southern France, and they were called troubadours. So troubadours are, are pretty well known. They were, you know, composers that would write poetry and sing and travel around to different courts. But there were also women that did this, and that was much less common, of course. Mm-hmm. And those are called troubadours. And so um, there are some texts. I mean, we don't really have any music. I think there's like one scrap of music, but there's a lot of texts that were written by women. And so I found the text for this piece in a book of those. This actually, this text is actually anonymous, so we don't know for sure it was written by a woman. But I just love the idea of like, okay, she's a singing cellist, and she's a woman, and it's kind of like sort of a reimagining of this medieval composer performer idea. So I thought that would work really well for her. Yeah, I mean the the pieces that we're going to hear from you today are are all quite different and explore different ideas and techniques and even even kind of musical styles. So I'm I'm kind of curious about your thoughts on what uh, so many teachers kind of impose on their students that idea of like finding your quote unquote compositional voice. Yeah, that's that's really tricky. I mean, <clears throat> I, I tend to think like anything you compose is going to have your voice in, mm-hmm. in it. But I also think I've really just kind of gone where the opportunities are and opportunities can be so varied. And sometimes you're writing for like a virtuoso who wants something really hard. And sometimes you're writing for a singing cellist. If <laughs> like if you have to figure out like, okay, how far can I go? Although with Molina, I was able to go pretty far. I mean, but the, the cello part is really hard and um, the voice part is, you know, standard. It's not easy, definitely. And then sometimes, you know, I, I wrote a, um, a few years ago, uh, I had an ongoing project, which was writing a musical for kind of untrained singers. So it's like, okay, how do you write for the person? And I think that dictates whatever the voice is quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So I kind of try not to worry about it too much. I kind of, you know, just decide like whatever is me is going to come out and you know just write the best piece. I think I'm trying to just think about like, what is the circumstance for this piece? Who am I writing for? Under what conditions is it going to get performed? What are the performer's needs? And then, you know, hopefully that appeals to other people also and it gets played and just not not psych myself out too much about like what my voice is. I mean, I think there's certain things that I tend to be drawn to. I really like counterpoint. I think my style is kind of like tonally based. Um, Tonal tonality plus is the way I usually think about Mm it. Um, I like rhythmic complexity. So I think those things tend to be constant. But other than that, I try not to overthink it because then I'll psych myself out. Yeah, I think that, you know, like that that idea you just mentioned of going where the opportunity is and and more I think probably this this follows that like going where your interests lie. Mm-hmm. You know, so it seems like you have a very broad um like you you want to uh work with a lot of different different types of thing and it's I I think that, you know, probably some people would shy away from that just because it's like, oh, well, that isn't my voice. I can't do mm-hmm. that. You know, um, my my thing is this. And all that all that really seeks to do is exclude a bunch of awesome things that you could be doing um, as opposed to like just kind of being, I don't know, like compositionally honest. You know, like I'm interested in all these things and I'm going to go where that is. And like you said, like it's me. Mm hmm. I'm it's like it's all it's all filtered through the lens of me, you know, so absolutely. Yeah. Um, when you were when you were doing this piece, 
you know the like you say the the interaction between the like the cello is not easy and the voice is no. not easy like <laughs> yeah like, so the, re- the recording i sent you is actually a recording that was done this summer by a singer and a cellist who have okay. a duo together and i have the feeling if the piece gets performed further it will be much more frequently by that kind of group than than by singing cellist because i don't know how i think there's one other that i've seen um soprano cellist uh-huh so, um, but yeah, I, I think that's very unlikely. So I knew that going in that if I want to get this piece played again, I have to <laughs> I have to be okay with that, which I totally am. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they're actually, um, the, the only other like, uh, singing cellist piece I know of, and the voice part is like insanely easy. So, <laughs> um, it's, uh, Petrus Voss. Um, yeah. Um, the only reason I know it is because the, the cellist that was at the school I was at in China, he played, he, I think he was friends with the composer or something and he played this piece several times. But again, the, like the voice part is almost nothing. (laughs) Whereas yours is like, it is a proper voice part. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's very impressive. There's quite a few pieces for singing viola. Which I think would That's be harder. Yeah, because you're all like. You're, I think that would be harder to breathe. Right, because your 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 neck is all like kind of mm-hmm. crooked on the on the instrument. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, this uh, what what is the um, I, I can't remember if you mentioned this already, but what is the what is the text kind of talking about? So, um, the text is called Alba. And apparently this is kind of a traditional sort of poetic form. And the idea it's that two lovers are meeting at night and they're realizing that the sun is about to rise and they're sad because they have to part. So if you think about like Romeo and Juliet, that Mm -hmm. has a similar scene in it. So it's kind of like a, apparently, I mean, I just learned this from researching, but it's kind of a a standard idea of a poem. And I chose this one in particular because, I mean, there were, there were lots of beautiful poems and, you know, medieval Provençal is very similar to other romance languages. So I can, I think a lot of people that have any experience with French or Spanish or Italian can kind of understand at least some of the words. So Mm -hmm. that also helped make it easier to set, but um, it's, it's strophic. It has this repeated line. um, Oh God, Oh God, the dawn, it comes too soon. And so that kind of drew me in because the language was fairly simple and I felt like, okay, you know, with this repeat, repetitions that um people are going to understand what it's all about yeah awesome well let's listen to it now so this uh and and remind us again who is the who are the performers on this recording so on this recording the performers are josephine stoplenberg and jean hatmaker and they just recorded a cd of um soprano cello works that will be released sometime this year awesome this is alba Yeah. 
I'm I'm really interested in this work that we're going to talk about next, and that's Crossroads for uh, Pandero and and Voice. Um, what's the kind of programmatic intent or story behind this piece? Okay, so um, this piece goes off in another interest of mine, another direction of mine um, that goes back twenty years or so um, when I first met my husband, who is an immigrant from Brazil. And I um, first got to learn about Brazilian music and Latin American music, which I knew nothing about, and also Brazilian culture. And I think it's especially interesting because my mom is actually a Spanish professor. So like, I'd been exposed to a lot of sort of Latin American culture, but Brazil, I think because they speak Portuguese mm -hmm. and it's just often just ignored, even though it's huge and it's a huge culture, I knew nothing about Brazil. Um, so it was really interesting to me to, you know, to visit Brazil many times and we lived there for a period of time and to get to know Brazilian culture and um, the history of Brazil. And so through that, I got to know about um, some of the really interesting syncretic religions in Brazil um, that are basically combinations of elements of Christianity and elements of West African religions, somewhat in some ways similar to like voodoo, which mm -hmm. is also similar in that way, or Santeria, which I think Americans are more familiar with. Um, so in Brazil, the the main one, as I understand, and you know, my understanding is probably incomplete, but like the, the main one that people take really seriously is called Candomblé. And what happened with these religions is that um, Catholic saints kind of became melded with West African um, they're called orishas. They're sort of like, not quite like gods, not quite like saints, but they sort of occupy sort of a similar position as Catholic saints. So every orisha kind of has an equal Catholic saint and the, the components of the two kind of got melded together. So mm -hmm. that's just like a very um, basic way of explaining candomblé and, and these syncretic religions. Um, so... Um, my husband had some friends that were involved in Candomblé and also Umbanda, which is, according to my friends, Candomblé light. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's, it's got a lot of the same elements. Um, Candomblé, you have to really study and to become initiated, you have to really study for a year or more and shave your head. And it's, it's really um, complicated. And according to my friends who practice Umbanda, it's like you can get certified not certified, but you can, you can become a practitioner in a weekend. <laughs> so, uh -huh. um, so he had some friends that, that, um, run an Unumbanda, um, center and they were really open and invited us to come visit and, and watch and film and, you know, just, just learn from it. Um, so we did that several times. And one of the things that I learned about that I thought was really interesting was one of the, uh, African Orishas, called Eshu is usually he's kind of like I don't know if you'd call him like the trickster character he's he's the one that's sort of like on the verge of everything so sort of like between good and evil or he's the one that you petition if you if you want something um, and his symbol is the crossroads or his his location is the crossroads so if you want something from a shoe you might leave an offering at a crossroads um, a lot of people are kind of nervous about him too because his 
uh, Christian counterpoint counterpart often is the devil although practitioners of Mana say no it's not the devil it's not that it's not like he's evil it's just like you know you have to be careful with him <laughs> so, right yeah so that intrigued me <laughs> quite a bit and um i thought like okay what if i wrote a piece about a shoe and i also thought about like um you know the the legend of um of the blues, the crossroads and the blues and right. the devil and selling your soul to the devil. So that kind of intrigued me too, like these sort of connections between the two cultures and um, just how it has this sort of like mysterious otherworldly connotation. So, I mean, the other big part of this is the person I was writing for at the time, um, Alex Smith uh, was a, a percussionist that got his doctorate here at Michigan state, wonderful percussionist. And he had, lived in Brazil, studied in Brazil, spoke Portuguese, gone to candomblé ceremonies also. So he was like totally, he asked me to write him a piece for Pandero for his last doctoral recital. And I was like, cause you know, cause he knew I was, I was interested in Brazilian music. And um, yeah, I said, great. Okay. What do I do for solo Pandero? Which if you don't know, it's just, it's like a tambourine. It's a little bit bigger. Um, it's got a little bit of a deeper tone to it. It's used in samba traditionally, mm-hmm. but it's, I mean, usually not used as a solo instrument or anything. So you can get really complicated rhythmic patterns with it. And it's really cool. But still, I thought like, okay, what can I do with solo pandero? Okay, let's make him sing. Okay, <laughs> sing instrumentalist <laughs> again. <laughs> and, and he was totally up for it, luckily. And um, so he really, he really liked this idea of like doing a tribute to a shoe through pandero. And so... Um, so I found some texts that were kind of tributes to Eshu. Um, I used the the traditional text. I changed the melody for it, and it can be sung by any voice type. You know, just starting on any pitch. So it's, it's sort of like a sort of like a folklore kind of chant sort of style, but it was my own melody. Um, so then he took it and he he really interpreted. It. So the the way the piece works is sort of two rhythmic sections. One is more sort of frantic and frenzied, and then it kind of stops. And then it slows down and gets a little bit more sort of sultry. And, um, and that's when he starts singing. And he thought that would be a good, a good place. Like, so what happens in, in these ceremonies is you're, you basically incorporate the orishas. You incorporate the spirits of the orishas and they kind of take over your body. And then you walk differently and you talk differently and sing differently. And it's, it's really dramatic. It's really interesting to watch and people afterwards after they've done it they say like you know sometimes they remember it depends on the person but sometimes they say i i don't even remember what happened or i kind of remember it like it's a dream or you know it's like you're you're there but you're not the same person so you really enter an altered state so he interpreted that alex interpreted that as you know, when I reach this point, it's kind of like that's the moment that I incorporate the spirit of a shoe and he kind of slows everything down and that's when he starts singing. Hmm. So that's that's the full story. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, the the Pandero is is it's an awesome instrument. I mean, uh the the one thing for for people that don't know, the head is loose enough so that you can kind of change the pitch. And you you make use of that quite a bit. The um um, you know, like the different bass notes mm-hmm. that that it could possibly have, and you have some really like intricate patterns. Um, and I mean, how did uh, how, how did you develop that kind of language? Not being not being a pandero player yourself, or, or you do you have um, any percussion background? Or I have no percussion background. No, but I love working with percussionists because, like saxophonists, I feel like 
they kind of just like say, okay, this is what you want. I'm going to figure out how to do it. But um, yep. no, what I did actually, I watched a lot of like YouTube videos on how to play Pandero and I kind of just got the finger patterns in my head. And then I figured uh -huh. like, okay, when you hit it with your palm, it makes this sound. When you hit it with your fingers, it makes this sound, you know, it's natural to kind of go palm fingers, right. mid hand fingers. Like that's a natural pattern. So you can change the rhythm as long as you stay within that pattern. It's pretty playable. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's basically what I did. I mean, I worked with Alex a little bit, but like the actual just figuring out like, okay, how can I write something that works basically came from just like, okay, how do you play Samba and Pandero and then slow it down mm -hmm. and, and watch, watch the patterns. Yeah. At actually going back to the university of Arizona, we had a, um, a, a group that, um, that performed, did, uh, performance and dancing of both African music and um and Brazilian music and um I remember when we were doing when we were doing Brazilian samba which was like oh my god it's so fun it's so fun <laughs> to play um I was either I was usually either doing uh caixa mm. or the um the the tambourine mm -hmm. um that that little thing that you play like oh my gosh that that was we actually played like at a we we did like a samba at a club uh in 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 tucson and um we were we were getting real real into it and like the tempo just kept going and for that tambourine part you you have to like you know you're basically playing with one hand and it's and like with one hand and uh yeah it was so fun but several of my friends learned how to play pandero and yeah, it's such a cool instrument. Um, so I I wanted to ask because you know I I I've heard other uh, pieces of yours and I've I've seen you give uh, talks at, at different places on on your pieces that you know are kind of interested in um, different parts of the world and and it seems like you musically explore these different parts of the world and musical traditions within those places. And it seems like, especially with percussion, I, I, th I definitely think I've heard several percussion pieces of yours that, that do that. And I'm, I, I've kind of done this as well with, um, I've written pieces for African instruments and Caribbean and instruments from China. And I'm wondering, um, you know, this is something that I always kind of am dealing with myself when, when I'm, working with these instruments i'm wondering how you stay away from cultural appropriation and instead stay on the side of homage or or just simply writing uh new music for these instruments so kind of what guidelines do you do you have for yourself yeah i, I think that's definitely a tricky thing um you know especially with this crossroads piece that like i'm deliberately referencing like another religion that is not my religion and another culture. Um, and I think like the, the thing that I keep coming back to that sets my mind at ease is like when I, when I show that piece or when I talk about it with, with our friends in Brazil that practice the religion, they get, they're really excited about it. Like they really mm -hmm. like the idea. Um, I think especially in the last few years, Brazil has had a, a president Bolsonaro who has repressed a lot of, um, of these traditional Afro-Brazilian religions. And to some extent they've, they felt like they had to go underground more. So just the idea of like sort of getting positive attention has been, you know, at least the people I know, the, the friends that we have makes them really happy. 
Um, which is not exactly what your question was, but you know, that's, that's something I keep like coming back to reassure myself, like, okay, they're, they're not offended by this or they're, you know, they don't feel like I'm getting it totally wrong. I think Brazil particularly is such a syncretic place already Mm -hmm. that, you know, that's just something that they kind of embrace. Um, but so, yeah, so the question about, about patterns, I don't know. I think maybe there's some value in like not being an expert <laughs> in, in the in the thing you're writing for. Like you know, knowing enough about it to say I like this sound. Now I'm going to treat it in the way that as a classically trained composer, I want to treat it. And then like something in between, just like the sounds you're working with and the training you have is going to create something new. Yeah. And so you're not just not just taking the other person's expertise. You're um, you know, you're, you're taking parts of it. I don't know. Some people might say that's worse, but <laughs> you're taking parts of it. Well, I think creating I, I, your own thing. Yeah. Um, it's, but, but like you said, percussionists do a lot of different types of music anyway. Yeah. So that, that's a very natural collaboration. I think, I mean, I think with other instruments, it would probably be a lot harder to do something that, um, that honors the tradition and still sounds good because, you know, if you have a classically trained violinist, they, they might not know how to play other styles in a way that sounds convincing. And then you might just get something that falls flat. So I think that's, mm-hmm. I think that's harder to pull off in many ways, unless the person you're working with really knows the style. So I think, yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to who you're working with and who you're writing for. It also seems like you're, you're kind of, you know, you're learning, uh, you're learning about it. You're, you're immersing yourself in it, but then you're also abstracting it. You know, yeah. and taking those abstractions um, and and using those abstractions musically, just just like honestly, you know, like uh, like you would with, uh, you know, like classical music or something, mm-hmm. you know, OK, well, you know, this is a cadence and the, these melodic patterns work and you just kind of abstract those into your own language and uh, and make something new from it. I th- I think like. I've I've heard many composers in the past. They they say, "Oh, I'm going to use this music," and even like kind of talk about it that way. And I'm I'm going to use this dance for this piece or or, uh. or something. And it feels to me like when I've heard your works, and that you know, like I said, you engage with the material. I mean, for this piece for Brazil, you lived there and you had personal connections, and you know, you you did the research to explore, understand, and like celebrate these uh the the musical culture and it the other thing that seemed to me you know this work and and like looking at other pieces of yours it seems like you're very transparent with you know the the origins of what you're engaging with yeah um i definitely think so um i'm trying to think if there's other like culture i like i i have a violin piece that kind of reference Norwegian fiddling a little bit. So that, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think if I've done it a lot with cultures other than Brazil, because I have a little bit more experience with Brazil. Yeah. Um, but like you said, like, I think uh, your point about abstracting is a good one because for example, you know, we all learn 18th century counterpoint in school mm-hmm. and I feel like that, helps me tremendously as a composer, but I don't write 18th century counterpoint. So what right. do I abstract from study of counterpoint that helps me write 21st century counterpoint? Yeah. So I think, I think that's a very good way to look at it. Like how, what do you, what is the essence that you're drawn to and then take that out and put it in a different context? I think mm-hmm. that's really interesting. Yeah. 
Well, let's listen to this. So who are we going to hear on this recording? This is Alex Smith, and this is an album that he recorded. Um, actually, this recording is not from that album, but he recently recorded an album of, of percussion music, too. Awesome. So this is Crossroads.
Okay, so uh, this is the last piece we're going to look at. This is meditation for solo violin. And I think after hearing the previous three works, one could assume that you generally operate from like a conceptual starting point and then music is developed in relation with that concept. Is that is that fair? I think that's, yeah, I think that's pretty fair, yeah. And it seems that this piece started... From what I've read on your, you know, from your notes, um, is started kind of from a purely musical point. Um, is that true, or was there some kind of extra musical concept, like behind yeah, the scenes, driving um, it? I think that's pretty true, which I think is probably the way I used to work much more when I was starting to compose. Uh huh. And I don't know if it's, yeah, I don't know if it's being a more experienced composer now, or maybe even part of it is like. When I write a piece now, I have to think like, okay, how am I going to talk about this piece? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that, I mean, I don't think that's entirely like deliberate, but that might be something behind it. But no, I think, I think it also is mostly, yeah, usually these days I have to start with some kind of concept because I think it's hard to write music for the same ensembles that we've been writing music for it for hundreds of years also. Yeah. Like, you know, it's harder to, it's hard to write like a purely musical piece that does something new. Yeah, so I find it easier to sort of get into if I'm like, okay, this piece is about this. Yeah, I'm I'm totally, I, I'm totally with you. Like, mm. I can't remember. Well, actually, I can. Actually, the last the last like purely kind of musical idea piece was actually a, a solo violin piece for me too. Um, mm. But it, it it's so hard for for me and it sounds like for for you too um to just sit down and just just write mm. it's like it's like yeah i can i i could probably do it but why you know <laughs> what what's what's driving me to to do it like i'm i'm always very attracted to like oh that idea how can mm-hmm. i make music out of that idea you know yeah. or or something like that um and uh and certainly you know there there are composers there are plenty of composers out there that was like can just sit down and write <laughs> just write melody and harmony or, or write counterpoint or, or do anything like all day long and that's but but yeah for me there there has to be a reason you know mm-hmm. there has to be a reason to to start writing those notes on the page other than just the notes for their their own sake mm-hmm. yeah yeah I'm, I'm with you on that and usually the reason is like because you're writing for somebody or something yeah. And yeah, that, that is the reason I think, which, you know, which wasn't the way when I started composing, I guess it was usually writing for myself then like pieces, you know, I started writing piano pieces and there were pieces that I would play. So I guess maybe that was the reason. So this piece for, uh, this piece for solo violin meditation, who did you write this for? Like you, you said, like, usually you're, you're writing for a person. So who, mm-hmm. who kind of got you to start this one? This is for a violinist named Robert Simmons, who will be playing it on the recording. Um, at the time, he was uh, he was a principal music principal second violinist at in Louisville Symphony, and I was living in Indianapolis, um, which is only a couple hours away from Louisville. Mm-hmm. And I heard him perform on several recitals, and he he does these really interesting recitals of almost all commissioned solo violin works that um, you know he just he just plays he just plays for an hour he talks a little bit between the pieces um but you know he's a great player and they're they're really interesting 
variety of works that he does. So I, I heard his recital and got to know him afterwards, and he ended up commissioning two works for me, and this is one of them. And um, yeah, so this piece, it's true what you said, like I didn't, the other piece that I wrote for him, I had a concept and a story, and it was very programmatic. And this piece was just, um, I just kind of had an idea. And I think the idea was like articulation on the violin, because I have kind of a pet peeve as a violist, that most new string pieces don't really explore articulation very much. I mean, mm -hmm. you hear a lot of like, long lines you hear a lot of extended techniques and like bow scratches and and that sort of thing but like you don't hear just like other ways of bowing the string very often in new music i think um and so i was like okay what if i wrote a piece that was about spiccato <laughs> or at uh -huh. least started with spiccato okay what's a nice thing to play spiccato on the violin okay e g sharp and it just kind of came from from that idea and it has a little bit of jeté in it too which is another texture i really like but yeah so that was that was basically the musical idea. I love Jeté. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's so good. Uh, the first time I encountered it was uh, Pierre Boulez's uh, Anthems, mm. uh, that solo violin piece. And it was just like, oh, come on. Come on. It's so good. Why don't we hear that more? Because like the thing is, I, because um, my, my, my instruments are piano and viola. And when I was a teenager, I went to like these, uh, these string camps that were really intense, that were like, you know, practice four hours in the morning and then have chamber music all afternoon and then go to concerts at night. And I heard a lot of like just show pieces, uh -huh. like everybody was playing Paganini. And as a violist, I don't quite fit into that culture, but, <laughs> but I heard a lot of it. And so like, you know, I heard all these really flashy things and I was like, why don't people ever use these things anymore? So yeah, so that's where I was coming from. That's a, that's a great point. Like <laughs> you're, you're totally right. Like the next, the, the next time, one of my students write, wants to write something for strings. It's like, go listen to Paganini. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Now, the the sound file is called Meditation Number One. Yeah. Is are there are there going to be more? Are there more? Maybe. I don't know. I okay. felt like Meditation Number One just felt like a more substantial title. I think. And then when okay. I tried to register with ASCAP, I couldn't use numbers or something like that. So I registered <laughs> as Meditation, and now I don't <laughs> I don't know what it's called. <laughs> so yeah, I never know which which file. Yeah. Uh, all of the durations of your pieces that we heard today are kind of within that like five to eight minute um, mm -hmm. range. Is that kind of emblematic of your work in general? And, and if it is, like, where do you think that sense of brevity comes from? I think it's more that like the the commissions I've had in the last few years have all mostly been like solo pieces. Uh -huh. And so like it's hard usually you can't go too far with a solo yeah. piece or, or it's just been, you know, for a shorter piece. Um, yeah. I just gotten like a lot of either like solo or solo electronics or, you know, the, the voice and cello one was a, originally a solo piece. So um, yeah. So I think, I think that has a lot to do with it. I don't think it's necessarily emblematic of my style, but something I'm getting more interested in also are theatrical works. Mm. Um, so I have a, a piece that I, that I wrote for the Burning River Baroque Ensemble that's like a mini opera. And I'm working on a, a choir piece that's kind of turning into like sort of a mass. <laughs> okay. So it's not necessarily shorter works. It's just kind of just that's where the that's where the commissions have been right. lately. And I, I think also like, you know, for, for something like this that, you know, it's, it's kind of nice to have something that doesn't go on. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you're totally right about the, uh, you know, the solo writing, you know, yeah. 
uh, once you pass that like 10 minute solo work Mm. especially if it's like for a you know mostly monophonic instrument Mm -hmm. yeah definitely Um, it's really hard certainly certainly like piano or even even per you know mallet percussion or, mm-hmm. or guitar like you can sustain for a while because you have the benefit of harmony but mm-hmm. for uh yeah uh, there are definitely those pieces out there the 12 minute <laughs> solo flute piece and i was like oh my god come on come on like <laughs> let's all right i get it um anyway uh so uh you said that uh this is we're going to hear uh robert simons on violin mm-hmm. and this is right. meditation
All right, so we come to the last question that I uh, asked all the composers and artists that come on the podcast. How did you find music as the thing to pursue for your life? So I think that's something I decided uh, in high school. And I was lucky enough, I went to an arts high school. Actually, I went to an art school from fifth grade through 12th grade. And it was a public school in Cincinnati. And um, spent about like half the day doing music and half the day doing academics. And that was just, it was a great experience. It was a great place to be. So not only not only did I love participating in music, but I think I saw other people that were older than me go and study music in college. So I definitely got the idea like, okay, this is something that it is possible to do. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I just, I, I felt like, you know, this is what I want to be doing with my life. I want to keep living like this. Yeah. That, I mean, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome that, it, you know, I talked to so many um so many composers and everyone, you know, the, there are so many different stories. And um, it's uh, oddly enough, there there are few, not none, but few that that kind of have your your experience of like just starting young and just kind of staying through it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's awesome. Yeah, I know a lot of people that didn't really get serious about it until later, which is also, you know, really encouraging that that is possible because, you know, like I. Like I said, I kind of came from that sort of stringed tradition yeah. where there were like a lot of prodigies around me. And so like I knew from a young age, like, OK, I'm not going to be a soloist. I can <laughs> I can see that. Um, but and I, I knew by the time I got to college, I was like, I really want to focus on composition and but, you know, still perform to to learn and get that experience. But I really want to be a composer. Yeah. Well, uh, before we go, can you tell everyone uh, where they can find more of your music and uh, connect with you like on social media? Yeah, um, you can find me on Facebook and my website is alexisbacon.com. Awesome. Alexis, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much. It's lots of fun. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com. Thank you.